0: You're listening to the Film Festival Secrets Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Holland. Uh, This is the first official episode of the new season of the podcast uh, after the successful funding of the Film Festival Secrets 2.0 campaign. And I want to thank everybody who contributed, made this a reality. (laughs) I deeply, deeply appreciate it. Um, And I plan on rolling out new episodes uh, once a week, um, thereabouts, until the end of the year, maybe with a few, few breaks in there. Uh, Those of you who are waiting to listen in on some live interviews, I will have some dates for you soon. But until then, there are some episodes that I have recordings for already, so I'll be rolling those out, and uh, I hope you enjoy those as well. If you missed out on the campaign, you can still go to GetMoreSecrets.com and pre-order the second edition of Film Festival Secrets the Book. Uh, And when you do that, you'll get the electronic versions of the first edition included in that price. Uh, And that includes the PDF, Kindle, and iBooks-compatible files. So no matter what device you're reading on, you can uh, load those in and it'll be compatible with it. Uh, this episode is sponsored in part by the Taos Shorts Film Festival. You'll be hearing about them later. And uh, by partners like Film 3-Way and Seed&Spark. And My guests on today's show are Alexi and Bodine Bowling, the husband and wife filmmaking team who made... One of my favorite films of last year, uh, it was called Movement and Location. The film features, uh, I mean, I'm a big nerd, so I love this film. It's got time traveling refugees who have fled to their past, our present, uh, to escape the harsh conditions of the future. And they don't really go into too much detail about what those conditions are or, or why they'd want to flee them, which kind of adds to the, to the mystery and the intrigue. But, uh, it's an interesting, interesting concept. Uh, Bodine wrote the script, uh, a bunch of drafts as you'll hear and, uh, stars in the film, which Alexi directed, uh, it is actually, as I record this doing a one week theatrical run in New York. Uh, and, um, although you probably won't hear this in time to actually go to that, even if you do live in New York, uh, it is going to be available on demand very soon and I'll have the URL and all that for you at the end of the episode. Uh, but you can look up Movement and Location on your web browser of choice and find that real, really quickly. I uh, talked to them in their home in Brooklyn, which was also the film setting, and asked them about their approach to science fiction to get things rolling. I should also mention that because we were recording in their home, uh, you're going to hear some thumps and bumps as we thoughtlessly bump our <laughs> hands against the table where the mic was standing um, you're going to hear some room reverb, so just count it as a little theater of the mind and put yourself in that Brooklyn apartment uh, with the three of us. So um, I've seen your film. I know your film. But how do you describe it to other people when they, when they ask?
1: A casual science fiction feature about time travel in modern-day Brooklyn. Yeah.
0: How did you come to a casual science fiction? What does that mean?
1: Um, science fiction where there are no special effects, where it's much more about people and relationships and stuff that feels very real and natural, but takes place in a science fictional sort of backdrop.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Rather than sort of overwhelming or trying to overwhelm people with a lot of, you know, crazy action sequences right. or visual effects. The idea here being that, um, you, uh, place certain limits and certain natural limits that are already in place because of your budgetary restrictions and, uh, it forces, for you as the filmmaker to uh, push things just one step further. And I think uh, hopefully if it's done correctly, forces the uh, audience to use their imagination more because everything isn't spelled out for you. It's much more of like a, here's this puzzle mm-hmm. and uh, it's in a seemingly natural world, but there are things that are just slightly different.
1: Yeah. I mean, I really love movies like that. You know, Another Earth and Sound of My Voice, I think, are two examples of casual science fiction that maybe don't call themselves that, but are the same sort of genre. I really love stories like that.
0: Yeah. They also, I think, I think the attraction for a lot of people who write those scripts is it's going to be cheap to make, Yeah, right? Yeah, of course. Did Were there any surprises on how not cheap it was going to be to make? It ended
2: up being... Oh, like I mean, <laughs> they, for for what effects you had, which weren't many, we was,
1: had none. Yeah. I mean
2: other than like special effects makeup, which is, which is I don't yeah. think we can kind of consider that. Which,
1: uh, yeah, yeah, especially yeah. the way that we ended up doing that <laughs> it was very non yeah. non special effectsy. Um, yeah, no, I mean production, and especially in New York City in February, when you're putting it for the most part on credit cards, there are a number of surprises about how much things cost. Mm-hmm. This sort of you know two accents of the cube truck, it's stuff that just you know it's hard to predict just how crazy stuff we'll get
0: you said the way we ended up doing that special effects you <laughs> you describe the effect and, and what you did
1: so there are two uh, there are three characters in the film that are time travelers and uh, the way that the way that uh, my character discovers So there's a teenager that my character discovers and realizes that she's from the future also and she notices a scar on her wrist and um, so to do the scar, we had a special... We had a makeup artist who does special effects makeup and she did a... It was like um, this kind of latex, this sort of clear latex uh, stuff. You get it like Ricky's or someplace that does specialty makeup. And then we just painted it with... Um, Eyeshadow. <laughs> and it was, it was not, you know, we, we were just really uh, understaffed and it was a very stressful environment. And it didn't always get the same attention in, in every shot. And that's one of the things when I watch the film, I'm a little bit like, I wish we'd work a little bit harder on that. But that's the only special effect that is in the film. And I'm sure somebody,
0: one. <laughs> yeah, somebody calls you out on that every single time. Right?
1: No, people are actually very sweet about it. I'm surprised I don't get more about that. <laughs> yeah. wow. But it is something that I cringe a little bit during that part. Otherwise, you know, for shooting it in 18 days, I'm really proud of it, but there, of course, when it's your own thing, and I also I wrote and I also edited the film, so I've seen it a million times. So things like that really jump out at me. Yeah.
0: And so when did you feel like you had it in the can and, and ready to take it to festivals? Like, when did you, What was it that made you feel like, okay, it's done?
1: Well, I, um, we, we shot in 18 days and we didn't do any reshoots. We couldn't afford them and I don't think
2: needed them. Let me just say that, uh, you know, in terms of pre-production and the script writing process, yeah. we spent a long, long time. She really did. Um, just, I don't know, maybe a year, year and a half It took me a
1: year and a half to write. So
2: 17 drafts. So yeah, 17 in,
1: discrete drafts. Yeah, I
2: mean, also we've been in the business for quite a while now, so we sort of knew the realities of what the production right. was going to be like. That was, it was grueling, and it was very cold, <laughs> uh, and we were bleeding money, but we sort of expected all of that. Once we had the you know, the actual shooting in the can. Then it was, um, I think the editing process probably took you maybe a few months until something that was watchable. What'd you say?
1: It it was about five months before I was locked picture. Yeah. And then it took about basically until we got into a film festival for the score and sound design to be finished. It was like another nine months on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they did such a great job.
2: Yeah. So it's, it, yeah, it's, there's so many steps along the way and it's, yeah. it's such a long time to market. I mean, I think that's one of the, aside from being sort of a risky thing that you know that it's risky and you're supposed to It's like, I, I think like probably the closest thing to it would be starting a pop-up restaurant or something. Right. You know, like, all right, we're just going to do this overnight. Like, all right, this, this will, this will just have to work. We'll make it work. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like that on the production side and that kind of calms down. And then, then you sort of have the marathon of, of post-production and then you have this sort right. of marathon of of the film festival world, and, and now we're just entering into sort of the, the marathon of uh, marketing and distribution. So it never ends, but it is, <laughs> it is exciting. But I think if the it's that time to market that is kind of the killer because you know you tie up all this capital, you you know tie up all you're turning down paying work, um, you know, and then it's it, it's quite a quite a, a, a bit of time before you can actually hopefully start to see some returns and then put that into your next project or whatever you need going to do. So. I mean, I think that's that's one area where I think independent filmmakers in sort of the new world of so much media being out there, if we can figure out, I mean, quality takes time, but if you can kind of figure out how to close that loop down a little bit so you're not just in no man's land for so long, um, I think that might be helpful. Um, but it is, yeah, it is it is definitely a marathon.
0: Well, I had planned to get into this a little later, but you're sort of going there now. So let's, uh, let's talk about... Feature films and whether they're viable as art and commerce, right? I mean, it just seems so much like episodic content, whether it's short form webisodes or whether it's long form, you know, release a series or a season's worth of episodes at once on Netflix, whatever. Like that seems to be the way that it's going. And that's what seems to be That's certainly what I watch more of. Mm. What is the current state of the feature film uh, in the independent world?
2: Yeah, I think I think I it blow you it's, away. It's, it's a really it's, big question. I, I, I love this question because yeah, I, yeah. I stay up nights thinking about this question. You know, I think um, I think certainly, you know, what is the place of independent feature films? I think, you know, when I first became enchanted with them, I think they had they sort of served a very different role and I think the the way that people sort of perceived them, the way that people, you know, uh, watched them and enjoyed them and discussed them was was very different from from what it is now. And I think in some ways both on the commerce side and the art side, we as independent filmmakers in this current generation, we have to kind of reinvent ourselves because, in many ways, the the traditional role of independent film, which in my mind was to you know tell stories and make. You know art movies that otherwise wouldn't be told, you know now all the tools have been democratized, which is a, a great thing So cameras are better and cheaper uh, You know we can actually do our own post-production now. We can actually do our own distribution But the challenge now is, is marketing, you know, I think that's that's probably the biggest challenge that as independent You know filmmakers we're, we're facing because if you have a series, you know Theoretically, you have some money behind you. There's a pre-existing network that you're plugged into. So you've already sort of got that that market carved out. The marketing is sort of done for you. If you're a one-off feature film, I think they're viable if you're taking the long view and if you're planning on making a career out of it. But I think there is very much a big question mark in terms of certain budget levels that traditionally have been what it costs to make an independent feature film where I think you can get into a bit of trouble, you know, if you spend too much money. Um, but on the other hand, if you are making things on a lean budget, and I think we'll probably know a lot more in the next you know, few years as some of these distribution pathways um, are explored a little bit further. And as I think people are more transparent about what the numbers actually look like, then I think... We'll start. It's, it's like Moneyball. You know, you'll be able to say like, oh, okay, we're gonna make this. We know what we're doing. We're gonna make it for a hundred thousand, and we think we can probably, you know, double that or triple that. It might take a couple years, and then if we build a big enough catalog, then maybe this 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 works. But right now, it's it's the Wild West. Nobody really knows what's going on. Um, so both on the art side and on the commerce side, I think we have to really try to uh, reinvent a lot of the models because uh, it's a whole new world, but a very exciting mm-hmm. world.
1: I still watch a lot of features. I don't – the only um, web series that I watch is High Maintenance, uh, which I think is just amazing. (laughs) It's so well done. It's just so good. Um, But I really really like features, and I really like that form. And as a writer, I think that it's such a great length to really tell a story and kind of get into something. Um, And that I really enjoy. And then there's also, just anecdotally, like I find something – legitimizing I guess about having made a feature like I feel like I'm not that I necessarily feel that taken seriously like in the industry as a whole but like I, I do feel like that's I don't know it, it just people respond to that as like having made a feature is like like all the time when I'm at parties and it the subject comes up of making a film and going to festivals or whatever people are always like oh it's a short film and I'm like no it's a feature and it's like they instantly their attitude about it changes it's I mean this is again just super anecdotally but I have noticed that just in terms of like making a feature and the point of making a feature and trying to establish yourself. Maybe there's something still to that a little bit, the magic of movies, you know, even as the industry is changing so much.
0: It's sort of upside down that the credibility of a feature versus the, you know, <sighs> dollar per unit of effort whatever oh, that unit yeah, is yeah, totally. right. When you, especially when you flip flop to advertising, which is, you know, for uh, I'm not saying there's, there's not a lot of effort put into it, but you're making a 30 second, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. And the the dollar per unit of effort there is just off the charts. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, I know so many people in your position who are supporting themselves making 30 second commercials. Yeah. And then putting that money into their feature films and making almost nothing in return for the feature film. Yeah. The feature film, you know, they they used to say, I want to make a short film, it'll be my calling card, right? And I'll go to festivals, and that'll be how people will know me. Well, now it's kind of like you have to make an indie feature. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Right.
0: And fortunately, you can do that on maybe what you used to pay to make a short. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, the credibility, I mean, gosh. I think Sundance is up to something like 10,000 shorts a year now. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 10,000 shorts. I mean, and I think it's like almost, almost 15 total. if you count features in there, so like Mm -hmm. the, the number of films they take in per year, the last hard numbers I had were about 12 K. So I think Mm -hmm. it's, it's up to 15 now from, from one of the rumors I've heard. And so when you figure out, you know, and not everybody is sending their film to Sundance. Yeah. So how many short films out there every year that don't get to festivals or just end up on YouTube initially. Like that's an awful lot of narrative and documentary content going yeah, on out there.
2: Definitely.
0: It's, it's mind blowing. Yeah. I mean, easier to get started, easier to learn, but making your mark is just, yeah, you know, it's intimidating for sure. Um, Absolutely. Fortunately, the only experience I had with filmmaking came long before any, any of this. And boy, I made every mistake in the book. Um, I'm actually uh, going to write an article about this uh, during this campaign because I, I want people to know that, you know, everybody starts someplace. Mm-hmm. And I never set out to make a film. I had an idea for a movie and a friend of mine loved it and ran with it. But, um, you know, I gave him some money and helped him write a few jokes and whatever and sort of watch as he did. And we made every classic mistake in the book, it was like, it was a short, but it was 45 minutes long oh, yeah. and it was mostly improvised and it was kind of edited. I mean, I, yeah. I don't want to sell his work short and, and his, his wife who is, you know, a professional industrial filmmaker did, did a good job, but you know, we broke a lot of festival rules and it was clear that film was never going to play yeah. festivals. Yeah. So um, it's just funny to think that later, you know, A lot later, I would develop any expertise in film festivals whatsoever, (laughs) having done nothing to even investigate how to get this film into festivals. But, oh well. I don't think I knew. I definitely didn't know how important they'd become to me later, that's for sure. Well, so let's bring it back around to to festivals in your film. How did you guys get started with festivals and start investigating that, that whole scene?
2: I think we got started with a lot of rejections.
1: Yeah. We got a lot of rejections. Um, you know, we aimed very high, like everyone does. (laughs) And we also submitted rough cuts to, you know, like Sundance and South by Southwest. And, um, but we submitted a pretty, pretty much final product to the Brooklyn film festival. And that was our premiere. And I remember that was the only festival that called me to tell me that we'd gotten in. I thought that would be more common than it was, but, um, yeah, Brooklyn Film Festival called. We were on a, a shoot. Alexi and I were on a shoot together for a nonprofit. We've done some video work for that I've been volunteering with for a while. And I was, um, I got the phone call and he said that he loved the film and he really wanted to program it. And I burst into tears. <laughs> At that point, I was pretty sure that no one was ever going to take us. And not only had we spent all of our money and like three years of our lives on this project, but that literally nothing was ever going to happen with it. And it was the most, incredible weekend that premiere they gave us two incredible slots they gave us a friday night and then they gave us a saturday night and then um you know we shot in brooklyn our a lot of our crew and cast are in brooklyn and all of our friends are in brooklyn and it was just the most incredible place to to premiere and then we ended up winning a few awards i got best screenplay which again made me burst into tears (laughs) we got the audience award and best score the amazing dan tepfer scored our film and just did a beautiful job um yeah, best weekend of my life. Actually, that premiere.
2: Yeah, the festivals were amazing, and I think the one one thing we just you know it was new to us. It was a whole new world, and we certainly were not strategic about it in a new way. We we knew that the odds were against us in terms of sort of the big festivals because we didn't know anybody there. Was our you know you know first feature film, so you know we were re- realistic about that. But the festivals that did accept us, I'm proud to say they just pulled it off the pile. Yeah, know? I mean, we didn't they, know anybody. Yeah. We just didn't know anybody. It wasn't like we were. Unknown quantity in any way. So yeah. we just submitted it blindly and... Threw it out a box. Yep. Um, <laughs> paid know, the full. Fingers crossed and... Yeah.
1: I, I spent probably two grand on festival submission fees. But yeah, we got into a couple places yeah. and I've had such a great time.
2: Yeah, met some amazing people. Oh had my some, gosh, some yeah. Some really great experiences. Great so, Q&As. Yeah. And every time we feel like the festivals are sort of dying down, then we'll, we get invited, you know... To other ones, which is a cool thing. it is sort of a momentum that occurs. Yeah. You know, somebody sees something somewhere, and then they say, "Oh, you know, this would be a great fit." So that's that's been encouraging.
0: You know, yeah. So you did Brooklyn in the fall, it's about summer, yeah, was, of twenty uh, fourteen, 2014. yeah, and recording in mid twenty fifteen, and you guys are still getting invitations.
1: Yeah, we yeah. I mean, just the last festival. It's just been just over a year. We just played um, Sci-Fi London which we were unfortunately not able to go to. It's the first one we missed. We were on a corporate job in Hawaii, actually. Otherwise, I would have been in London. Nothing else could have kept me away. But I needed the money more than I needed to spend the money. (laughs) So we went to Hawaii instead. Um, And uh, we're going to be playing in a fantasy, science fiction fantasy convention in Tel Aviv, actually. Someone from there got in touch with me and asked if they could screen it. So that's happening next. And then we have a couple more science fiction fantasy specific festivals that we've applied to that we're waiting to hear from. So, yeah. Yeah. And then release
2: it this fall. Yeah, so, and then release yeah. it
1: this fall. Oh, and we're also part of the um, the Southern Circuit tour. Okay, which cool. is super cool. So we're going to be playing four art house cinemas in the South in October. Three three of those screenings are in October, and then we're playing in New Orleans in December.
0: Cool, That's part
2: of that. We're very they're excited. Flying us
1: down and paying us—it's amazing. It's the entire thing is the most. I couldn't believe we got in. I was so excited.
0: Yeah. What an honor. The Southern Circuit—they do some really interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, they've made sort of a cottage cottage industry out of finding arts organizations that want film programming, but would rather just hire somebody to do it than, yeah. you know, and and for cheaper than they could hire a film programmer. Of
1: course. Yeah. Um,
0: and, yeah, so it, I've known a number of filmmakers who have gone through it, and they just get to hang out with other filmmakers yeah. and, you know, just go from city to city and show their film and, and you know... Um,
1: yeah, I have to say like that's been my favorite part of this whole thing is that experience of the Q&A and getting to share the movie with people who are super engaged and want to see it and have a lot of interesting questions. I think our best Q&A was Atlanta Film Festival. Yeah. I loved that Q&A. I loved that the whole experience of playing that festival, but that was such a – really Cameron magic- did such a great job
2: leading yeah. it and
1: just mm, so yeah, had such a good time.
2: It was magical. Yeah. 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 For me, growing up in Atlanta yeah. and outside of Atlanta and, and Georgia. And knowing that theater. And knowing that theater, seeing so many movies. I think I saw Mulholland Drive there. I mean, it just, <laughs> this, in my mind, it's like yeah. the epic cinema. Wow. So to be able to screen our movie there was a real treat. Yeah. It was really special. Well, the uh,
0: location, obviously, in the title, um, Brooklyn is such a large part of that film. It's a yeah. character in that yeah. film. Uh Certainly, if you know Brooklyn at all, recognize. But even if you don't, you sort of you really get a sense of place out of the film. Um, What were the challenges of film? I mean, New York is notoriously hard to film in. Yeah. But (laughs) start. We'll start with the weather, and we'll move on from there.
1: Yeah, it was February. Uh, We had a blizzard. At one point, we were shooting a lot of exteriors. The the following winter was much, much worse in terms of snow. If we'd gotten that level of snow in 2013 and we were shooting, we would probably had to cancel. I don't know what
2: we've done. It was still bad enough, though. I mean, really imagine bad. working 18-hour production days, and then you get home, and you, you know, can't sleep because your mind won't stop racing. You're watching the dailies. Then maybe you get four hours of sleep, and you wake up, and <laughs> snow has fallen. So now... You know, we've got the fifteen pass parked yeah. outside. So before I can even get to set, I have to shovel the fifteen pass <laughs> free. And, you know, oh, so and then, that's starting at like five thirty in the morning. You know, and you're just out there shoveling, yeah. and, and you're just thinking, what?
1: What am, I, what am I doing? What
2: am I doing? What am I doing? Yeah. And then, and then, but you don't want it to ever stop because it's well, the most
1: fun. That's debatable. I yeah. definitely <laughs> you, want, you want sleep,
2: but you don't want it. To. I, I
1: was also I had a lot of tasks on set in addition to starring in the film, and also. Having written it, like I, you know, I was the only person on set thinking about costume continuity. So every night I would call the actors figuring out where the costumes were they would need the following day and would they have them. That whole process was really crazy. And then I also scheduled the film, which was by far the hardest part. And so there were things like we had a blizzard happen while we were supposed to shoot a lot of exteriors in Prospect Park. And so I had to like spend four hours entering the fugue state of trying to redo the schedule, which is like the worst kind of logic puzzle because so many things have to be, You know, there's like a SAG teenager, and then there's like a guy who needs to be flown back to San Francisco. And then there's like one location that we cannot shoot there on Mondays, and I have to shoot there on a Monday. It's like all of this stuff that was just, and then one of our locations burned down while we were still filming. We had just finished shooting there. It was just, it was crazy the number of things that happened. And I mean, you have this general idea of like, if you're just really well organized and sort of smart, you'll figure it out. But it's just like, I I think often about how much luck was required to carry us through how many near disasters we had or disasters we had that we were able to figure out. <laughs> and I just feel so, so lucky. But next time I, you know, for the next one, I definitely would like to pat it with more than 18 days. Cause yeah. that was definitely one thing that made it a lot harder than I think it needed to be. Yeah.
2: I mean, filming in New York city is amazing because you know, on the one hand it gives a lot in the sense that like you just roll outside, you turn on the camera and there's a vibe. There's sort of this production value. It looks amazing. Um, You know, on the other hand, you can't control anything at all. You know that (laughs) going into it, but that has, you know, ripple effects on down from like at its most basic level for me, you know, you're trying to concentrate on, on what you're doing Um, you know, you're understaffed, uh, (laughs) you got incredibly expensive lenses and camera gear, like maybe out on the street and you're, at least for me, you know, if one of those, just one of those cases walks away. It's, it's, it's like the worst nightmare. Your production is basically over. Like you, the, the, what, that one case costs more than the entire budget of the, of the film. So you're you're filming, and then you're constantly like looking over your shoulder to make sure that all the cases are there. You're doing case counts. Okay, we got like 18 pieces. All right, it's like move on to the next location. So it's something as simple as that. To you know, we had actors in NYPD uniforms, and you know, we had a couple instances like you know, nine in the morning. You know, <laughs> and somebody walks by and just starts yelling at our guys. Yeah, like, like awful stuff. I right, hate cops. Cops are the worst. Yeah. You know, ten minutes of just oh you know our actors <laughs> getting yelled at. I mean, clearly we're a film crew man. Like, <laughs> we're just trying to make an art movie. Like we are not. We're not in. Yeah, movie. and we
1: were shooting outside at that point, so we had to have actual like movie unit police officers present because we mm. had you know people in cop uniforms, and so those guys were just sitting in their car, and you have this. Gross guy going by, like yelling you know, like, "effing pigs" or whatever, and like the movie unit cops are just like, ah, whatever.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, gave me, gave me some respect for what they what they yeah. have to deal with, I guess, yeah, on a day to day basis. But it's you know, so so there are these things that you just obviously you can't control, and yeah. um, uh, but it makes things exciting for sure.
0: <laughs> Nobody good enough to that you would ask them to sign a release, though.
2: Yeah, well, okay, well let's yeah, see. I'm trying to think. Not really. I mean. I, there were We certainly There's the guy that punched you I got is, punched
1: by a homeless guy While we were filming at one point And and that was like One of those things too Where I was like At least he didn't punch me in the face Like this could be a lot worse Like he got me in the shoulder
2: Yeah He nothing, was, he was
1: obviously broken yeah. He could have had
2: his own show I think But like you know He was just like yelling stuff In the camera Yeah um,
1: I am a destroyer Yeah
2: But yeah, that didn't awesome. Didn't quite fit into our narrative he, he, he didn't make the cut And then that whole, the whole scene
1: Ended up not getting in the film, which was just heartbreaking because it was so annoying to shoot that and to get hit. And then I didn't even use it. Anyway,
0: <laughs> but it made a good story.
1: Yeah. 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 You go. It's been survived. That's something. Yeah.
0: So New York gave the film a lot of its character. What about New York giving to you in terms of your career and, and your lives? why, why are you guys here in New York and what's it doing for you?
1: I'll start. I love, I love New York. I'm from a town of 2000 people in Maryland and I moved here for college and I never left. So I've been here for 14 years, maybe 15, 15 years. Yeah. I moved here in 2000 and I, um, I just, I see a lot of theater. I just, I love the city so much. And at this point, you know, our social circle, we have a lot of great friends and a lot of, um, artist friends who I'm really inspired by who are making it work live musician friends that I'm really impressed with their tenacity and because it is a very unforgiving city it can be very of course expensive and the weather is for the most part terrible (laughs) um right now it's not so bad but it's generally pretty bad and so you know there are these things that are difficult about it but it's just there's just so much going on and as a freelancer I do a lot of voiceover I do a lot of ads on Pandora and I do um a fair amount of video editing but I'm phasing that out a little bit. I'm doing a lot less of that and more voiceover. Um, and there are just a lot of opportunities that I'm happy. I happen to know the people at this point, you know, I've been freelance for eight or nine years. So I just have connections that would be difficult to start over if we were, you know, to move someplace else. And I don't know where I'd want to go. I mean, I am so devoted to this (laughs) ridiculous, expensive, filthy city that has completely captured my heart. (laughs) What about you, Alexi?
2: Mm um well we were talking a little bit about this earlier but i i do think um you know things have changed quite a bit in the past uh, decade when i i went to university of georgia and loved athens uh, moved to atlanta for uh one year it was my first year out of college and and you know got a job uh editing learned how to edit um and i had a sort of my very first art film project going on um ended up moving back in with my parents and taking over their garage just to finish that up. And at that point, um, and they, they weren't living in Atlanta at the time, but, uh, uh they were out in Augusta. Um, I just sort of felt like I, I don't know, n- you know, New York city always terrified me. That wasn't necessarily the first, you know, destination in my mind. I, I, I don't think I, you know, certainly visiting growing up. I just felt like, man, that's a place I will never ever live. Um, but Finishing editing my first little film that took me five years to do. Uh, you know, I didn't really want to go back to Athens, even though I love it very dearly. Um, didn't really want to go back to Atlanta because at that time, Turner was sort of the only game in town. You know, I mean, and I went in for an interview with them. I think it was like in broadcast ops or something. And uh, it was me in this sort of corporate, you know, I don't know, executive little conference room. Mm -hmm. And there's like six people interviewing me for this job where my job would basically have been to, you know, watch the feed going out overnight, like, you know, watching cartoons, which is is cool, but I I just didn't see where that would take me. And I just, you know, the reason I got into making films was to be an independent filmmaker, to, to make more, uh, hopefully art films and, and, and documentaries and, and things that were created um, autonomously and from sort of an outsider's perspective. And it sort of became pretty clear that, I mean, Turner's great, they make some amazing stuff, but if that was sort of the only option, it felt like, I don't know, maybe I need to push myself a little, a little further, at least to experience something different. Um, and so, LA didn't seem right. I, I didn't really want to have to drive everywhere and it seemed sort of like not the right fit and and new york was the city where all the films that not all the films but many many of my my favorite films have come out of Canada, there's sort of a certain sensibility a certain grittiness a certain challenge to it that i think scared me the most and uh, my best friend from growing up had moved up to new york and he's like Well us you know come up for a visit and like you know see see what you think and I, I really was in a place where i just didn't know what the next move was you know and um uh, I, I, uh, I wrote my aunt a letter and she had uh, grown up in New York City. She was a hairdresser and she'd done Broadway stuff and a few films and I just wrote her for some advice. You know, I was like, I don't know if I should go to film school. I don't know if I should stay down here. I don't know if I should, you know, check out New York. She said, well, you know, come up for a visit. Um, and she put me in touch with uh, someone that uh, she met very early on who was a, a PA um, initially when she met her and who now is working for Albert Mazel's. And so I got in touch with them and uh, I said, Hey, I'll, I'll work for free, you know, like just uh, love to, you know, come up and, and sort of experience it um, for a week. I think I came up for maybe a week, week and a half. And you came in September. And I came that's in September, which is the, the best time of year. You know, New York. Like to New the York weather's York. beautiful. Yeah. And uh, Albert at the time was doing a documentary on the Dalai Lama speaking in Central Park. So here I am all of a sudden I'm in New York. It's the weather's absolutely magical. The <laughs> Dalai Lama is there. I'm talking to Albert Mazel's. We're sitting in Central Park <laughs> uh, eating sandwiches. And I'm like, Albert, I don't, I don't know. You know, I made this movie. I don't know what I should do. Should I just like keep making movies or should I go to film school or should I stay in Georgia? He said, you know, don't go to film school. Just keep making movies. You'll be fine. (laughs) And at that point, I don't know. It was just like hearing from this amazing filmmaker. Like, yeah, you can do it. Just keep doing it. And to him, it wasn't so much like, yeah, you need to be in New York. It was just like wherever you are, just keep making movies. And, um, that kind of gave me the confidence and I just sort of got wrapped up in this idea of like, okay, this place is terrifying. Let me see if I can do it. So I, you know, sold the car, packed up the stuff, you know, little suitcase came up to the city. And so I think for me, was about the challenge of it a decade flies by really fast and now and the city's changed quite a bit in that in that 10 years you know i mean uh, brooklyn's changed immensely it's in some way i mean it was always expensive but it's gotten more expensive on the other hand there's a lot of opportunity here so you kind of have to constantly you know check in with yourself and you say like why why am i here i mean my family's still down in georgia i love it down there in the meantime i look back and the georgia film industry is is amazing it's just absolutely exploded and i I interned at the Georgia Film Commission back in the day before they were getting those incentives passed. And so to to see that get passed and to see the massive economic impact that's had and all the jobs and all the creativity, it's just so beautiful. Um, So at least for now, you know, we're kind of, you know, hunkered down here in Brooklyn for the moment. Um, But this project that I'm working on with my brother called Culture Sport, which is an animation series, he was in Brooklyn, and we decided, you know, New York's not the place for that production. Like, we need time. We need space. Um, there's a certain amazing uh, creative freedom uh, that I think uh, is afforded in, in Georgia. And so he moved back uh, about a year, year and a half ago. And so we're basing that entire production out of Georgia. So I think increasingly, uh, Georgia is on my radar in terms of running productions through there. I mean, maybe moving back someday. But it's, uh, long story short, It's like night and day difference. From a decade ago when Turner was sort of the only game in town to now, I think uh, you can really have a viable career in in production as a filmmaker, doing television, Mm -hmm. uh, commercials, et cetera, uh, in Atlanta. It's really, really exciting.
0: This episode of the Film Festival Secrets Podcast is sponsored in part by the Taos Shorts Film Festival, taking place next year, April 7th through 10th in Taos, New Mexico. Uh, Wikipedia tells me that Taos is, uh, the site of both, uh, a historic art colony and a native American Pueblo. But when I talked to founder and director Anna Cosentine, she pointed out that the geography of the place is just the first part of the journey.
3: People fly into Albuquerque is our nearest airport, and they think they're there, but it's a three-hour drive from Albuquerque, <laughs> and there's really no public transportation. So um, the journey to get up to Taos is kind of an adventure in itself, And but once they are up here our venue is centered in town, which is a small town and all the, um, you know, eateries and all the workshops, panels and parties are really located and hotels are located centrally. So everybody can walk to everything. People kind of become like a group, you know, it's, it's really, um, you don't have to text people. Where are you going? What are you doing? You know, everybody kind of goes as a group and meet people. And I guess one of the main things we've heard is they've made such good connections and such good friends, and the audience, you know, afterwards actually comes up to a lot of filmmakers and congratulates them and asks them and pick their brains, so it's a really hands-on, intimate festival.
0: The Taos Shorts Film Festival has deadlines coming up uh, November 22nd, which is their regular deadline, and December 11th, which is their late deadline. So go to Taos Shorts, that's T-A-O-S-S-H-O-R-T-Z dot com, or look for them on Film Freeway. Uh, and speaking of that Z on the end of shorts, I asked Anna what that was all about.
3: Well, just just for you asking. <laughs> I mean, why not? You know, we uh, we really fancy ourselves as a cutting edge festival, and Uh, I think the Z kind of looks like a sword, like Zorro, you know? Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so the reason is to get people's attention. I mean, why not? What other film festival do you know? Shorts Film Festival uses a Z.
0: Thanks so much to Tal Shorts and Anna for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Well, Lana, aside though, you are, it's not like you're working on Wall Street to support your independent film habit, right? You, you are finding work as a filmmaker here in the city.
2: Yes, but the irony is this. Uh, 95% of all my work in the last four years has involved me getting on a plane and going somewhere else.
1: Off in Georgia.
2: Off in Georgia. <laughs> so I think, I don't know if the universe is telling me something, but it's it's so rare that I actually have a shoot in New York. I have a handful of clients where where it does happen, but uh, for the most part, it's been a lot of uh, docu-series work, television work, um, or short form uh, you know uh, for the web uh, documentary work and it's always like hey what are you doing can you be in Detroit on Thursday or can you go to Ghana next week uh, which is which is cool right. but it's it's like I don't know I, I'm probably on the road 250 days a year like mm-hmm. and that's, that's a hard pace to maintain so when I come back to New York now I just kind of feel like a tourist I'm like oh wow this is a cool city
0: <laughs> <laughs> well I'm sort of asking for you know the the kid who might be in Atlanta or Oklahoma or Minnesota or wherever, and they're sort of facing the same choice that you were facing: you know, Do I stay here and make movies, or do I go somewhere place like L.A. or New York or now Atlanta? Maybe mm-hmm. you know. Th- there's so- something undeniable about the fact that location provides you with opportunities. Yeah. Do you think that you know? Someone came to you and said, Mr. Mazels, no um, <laughs> but someone came to you and said, What what do I do now? Right? You know, is New York the place for them?
2: Ooh. Uh, it's rough out there, you know. Yeah. And I, I think um, I think there's been such a sea change. Um, I think I think if I were to do it over again at this point, um, I'd probably stay in Atlanta. You know, if I were, if I were from Georgia and if I think if, if that's where my network was, I think, I think ultimately it's a, a question of collaborators, right? Like you, it's a, it's a team sport. You can't do it on your own. Why would you want to do it on your own? So if you're in a small town in the middle of nowhere, but you've got a great network of collaborators, mm. um, I think, you know, you have access to, to the equipment. It's much more affordable. Now you have access to distribution. So if you, if you have access to, you know, uh, collaborators, then you're in a pretty good position Especially considering the fact that nobody knows what's going on, including Hollywood, including the networks. I mean, five years from now, it's going to look entirely different. The unbundling of cable is going to have massive ramifications. Uh, you know, uh, who knows what's next? I mean, so I think, you know, if it were 10, 15, 20 years ago, I'd say you really, you really should at least for a few years, spend some time in New York or spend some time in L.A. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. If you're good uh, on the sort of internet uh, networking marketing side, I think you can perhaps establish uh, a following and uh, maybe even some uh, potential collaborators that that aren't from your exact uh, town. That's much more possible and doable than it is now. But that being said, um, there's a very real... Um, value, I think, to being in the place where it's kind of all happening. Um, You know, and and I think you can certainly include uh, Atlanta on that list now. LA, New York, Atlanta, um, uh, Louisiana to a certain extent. Um, You know, there are active production communities if you can if it's enough to, you know, if there's enough work in whatever your city or region is, like, you can make a go of it. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't hurt, I think, to at least maybe experiment if it's if it's I think if it if it if it pulls you or if there's a fascination or a curiosity, even if you're just getting started out, you've got nothing to lose. Like spend a, a year in New York or L.A. or, or, or some place that is intriguing to you. And if it doesn't stick, then like go back. But uh, anyway, I'll just say do what you want to do.
1: <laughs> I would just like to throw in one thing, which is just really to raise awareness about it. But there's a wonderful program, a PA training program that the mayor's office does in New York, which is free. And uh, we got a lot of PAs on our film from that program, and they were amazing. And you're trained in how to, like, be on a set. And then those PAs are sent off to, like, higher profile projects than, you know, indie films, but also indie films. Um, And it's a great opportunity to learn. I mean, I started as a PA and I kind of worked my way up. I didn't go to film school. Um, And I was doing like the coordinating track for a while. And then I kind of switched over to editing, which was a helpful way to see, you know, how to do budgets and then also how to like put scenes together, which really informed writing. And so it all kind of like came together in a nice way for me. But I, I definitely feel like having the experience of working on sets in different roles is so important. And if you're a good PA, which is to say, can I curse? No, just okay. <laughs> to say, if you're not an asshole, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> like you won't say a PA for long, you know what I mean? So yeah. I, I definitely feel like that's such a great opportunity for, uh, for someone who maybe can't afford film school or doesn't want to go, which I completely understand. And I don't think the film school is necessary. Um, the PA training program is a great way to, to break in yeah, and then, you know, PAs are paid it's still $200 a day, right? Like it's, it's not a bad way to make a living, yeah. <laughs> especially if you're young and you're you right. know
2: and, and I think that gets back to the question of place and city. And, and I think ultimately the, the driver of all paying work, which so far has not been the, the independent <laughs> art film, but I'm hoping that that'll, that'll, that'll change <laughs> soon. But all the, the paying commercial or television work, it's all driven by relationships. Yeah. And if anything, I mean, I'd say that's maybe the the great value is, yeah. Not thinking of it so much as like, oh, what city, but it's it's more like what network of people. So if, if you can find that network of people uh, and build those relationships online, then great. Yeah. But but the fact of the matter is whenever I come up for a job, if, if the production company or the network asked to see my resume, I'm pretty much 99% sure I'm not going to get that job. It's always, uh, hey, so-and-so said you're great are you available? It's always the, the, and I think, especially in today's world, everything is driven by human relationships. I think it's always been the case, but I think now more so than ever. So if there's enough of a network and enough of com, uh, a community, um, then stick with that. It's all about the people. Yeah, I think more so than just the shell of whatever city X, Y, or Z. Yeah. I,
1: I also, Neil Gaiman gave this great commencement speech a few years ago that I really love, which is he was talking to a arts school and he was talking about how to be a freelancer. And he was like, there are three things you need to be a good freelancer. You need to do really good work. You need to always do your work on time and you need to be a pleasure to deal with, but you really only need two, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> which I think is such good advice.
0: Yeah. I love him. Uh, we'll do the Neil game and love him in, in just a minute. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um,
0: there's a quote I use all the time from a friend of mine, um, a guy named PJ Raval. He's a cinematographer and director and documentarian out of Austin. And we were at um, the independent film festival of Boston at a party. And I forget how we got to this point in the conversation, but he said, you know, you can be an asshole and work <laughs> in this business, but it's going to cost you three times as much to make everything. Yeah. And it was a very telling statement of, how willing people are to do, you know, discounted or free work.
2: Absolutely. A, if they yeah. like you, yeah. and
0: B, if they feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves. Yeah, that it's not definitely. just a soulless, you know, corporate whatever. Yeah. A commercial for Pandora. Yeah. Or <laughs> yeah. I'm going to listen to Pandora. A whole totally different <laughs> way from now on. Uh, is that her? No. Yeah. Uh, so. And, and Neil Gaiman this is a total also side trip that I may edit out but who knows <laughs> um, but I was at the Strand Bookstore this afternoon uh-huh. and just so th- well, I was in the kids section because that's where my kids are and I have no use for physical books anymore it's just like why well, have them in yeah. my house but um, I picked up a book called The Thirteen Clocks by James Thurber which I'd never heard of before no. I love Thurber stuff but Thirteen Clocks what is what is this and I opened it, and the introduction was by Neil Gaiman. And I'm like, huh, oh. And basically, Gaiman tells the story of how he was on the phone with, um, well, he introduces it by saying that the book is a rare treasure, like it's this piece of magic. And I'm like, huh? Mm-hmm. And he says he was on the phone with a friend who was having a miserable day and just broken up with her boyfriend, having job troubles. And in the middle of the phone conversation, he just starts reading her the book. And, like, 20 minutes later, she's laughing and happy, and he'd done and said exactly the right thing. Wow. I was like, wow, okay. So, now I have a copy of that book. Oh, wow. Yeah, Neil Gaiman is, is a pretty special yeah. uh, writer and person.
1: So is Amanda Palmer as well. Yeah. Did you yeah. hear – she gave a podcast interview with Tim Ferriss, and I've been emailing it to everybody. It's amazing. She talks about creativity and how to be an artist and mm. how to be a human, and it's – so inspiring.
0: She did a TED talk, which I think was yes, that was similar. Yeah, yeah. She
1: talks about I haven't actually watched it, which is ridiculous because oh, she because she text. wrote the book. She wrote a book from that TED talk. Okay. She basically got a yeah. ton of book deals, and uh, she took one, and um <laughs> that now she's like supporting that book and doing a podcast for that. But
0: anyway, so inspiring books and podcasts and support from fans. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's <laughs> a real thing.
0: Yeah, it but it
1: we'll
0: matters. see. Yeah. Uh. Well, while we're talking about support from fans. Um You guys raised some of your money through Seed&Spark. We did, yeah. Um, and Which is one of the lesser known, I think unfairly, but that's the way things are, lesser known crowdfunding platforms.
1: It's so new, though, too. We were yeah. one of the first projects. They were still in beta. Yeah. Um
0: Is crowdfunding something you would turn to again? And talk about that experience a little bit.
2: Yeah, I, I think crowdfunding uh, is absolutely the way ahead um, for independent filmmakers uh, on anything. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, it's ridiculous to put, to put caps on it. Every project is different. I, I would say the money is very helpful, but I don't think that should be the primary reason to crowdfund. I think, I think uh, audience sort of building an engagement is really the best thing that you can get out of it. Um, the, the money really helps, of course. But I think that if you think of that as sort of a byproduct um, and you focus on engaging an audience and starting to build that audience, um, I think that's where the, the real value is. And, I, and I, this is something that, you know, for us, even though we, we did crowdfund, we, we didn't have that mindset, you know, uh, at, at that point. It was like, okay, how can we, you know, we've only got X number of, you know, pennies that we've saved and, and, and so much on our credit cards. You know, we did need that extra, I think, maybe third of the budget. Um, so that was a bit more top of mind, but I think looking back, you know, it's sort of like, oh wow, that, you know, starting to build that audience from day one. And I think for any future projects, once you start that process, uh, keeping in touch with them, sharing what the process is like. Because, you know, I mean, a zillion filmmakers have said this, and a lot of times it's true. It's like, oh man, the, the, the really great story would have been the making of this movie. Right. You know, because there's always crazy stuff going on. And I, I, I think there are stories there, and I think. Um, if you can, if you can share those in a compelling way, um, perhaps you can grow your audience and and just, uh, let people know how thankful you are for, for their support. And then, and then the point at which you do have a finished film for them to see, um, it's maybe even a more valuable experience for them. Um, but yeah, so I think, I think sort of crowdfunding, absolutely and spark. Amazing. I think they have the correct model for independent filmmakers, but I think moving ahead that, that really is, um, a big piece of the puzzle, uh, for independent filmmakers. So
0: how is that factoring into the release of the film this fall?
2: So uh, so on the distribution front, the great thing about Seed&Spark is not only on the, sort of the crowdfunding side on the front end uh, for uh, um, raising uh, the part of your budget and building your audience, they've also now built in a really amazing back-end distribution deal. So they've cut some deals with uh, Verizon FiOS for VOD release. Um, they've got uh, a digital aggregator partnership um, that can get your film plugged into, you know, The Usual Suspects, iTunes, Hulu blah, blah, blah. Netflix is not a guaranteed thing, but it's certainly submitted. And if Netflix chooses to license the film, that's a possibility as well. But these are, these are things that uh, up until this point, even when we were making the film, that, that wasn't, there wasn't necessarily a, a ready uh, pathway for that. So uh, that's, that's pretty huge for us. So we'll, we'll be releasing through seed and spark uh, and then into these other platforms uh, this fall. And so we're, we're very uh, grateful for that opportunity.
0: So you ended up at how many festivals? We've played eight. Eight. That's a, that's a pretty good number yeah. for a feature, honestly. Um, apart from maybe being a little more strategic about your sub- submitting next time, the things you'll do differently on your next next project? For
1: film festival submissions mm. specifically?
2: We'll,
0: we'll read the
2: updated version yeah. of your book first. <laughs> <So, laughs> I appreciate I that. But. Totally this is part of the research for that book so <laughs> well let's see alright so we've got one coming up uh, that we'll be filming in, in spring which uh, Bodine yeah, is going to direct another screenplay. Um, which we're very excited about Yeah. Um, and so yeah let's think through um, we haven't gotten into the nitty gritty of it quite yet but uh, I think we could probably sort of map out a general strategy yeah what would you like to have happen
1: I mean, I would definitely want to have the film much more complete before submitting to some of the higher tier festivals, mm-hmm. especially. I think a lot of people submit rough cuts to Sundance, and that's kind of their deadline for getting a rough cut together. I feel like I know a lot of people who have said that, and I definitely felt like that was true of us. Um, and, uh, you know, that's probably not the best idea. <laughs> you only get one shot at being seen by these people. You know, you want to make sure it's the best possible film. Um, I definitely, you know, all of the festivals that we played were so incredible that I want to continue going back to them. Indie Memphis was an incredible experience. Woods Hole was really, really fun. Atlanta Film Festival was a great time. Brooklyn Film Festival has my heart forever. (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, we've really had, we've really been lucky with the response we've gotten at the festivals too. We've won awards at four of the eight, which was also really gratifying.
0: Um, you test the film before you send it anywhere.
1: I definitely, I, yeah, with friends sending links to friends and getting mm-hmm. feedback on edits it. from people you know I, I especially like sending the drafts of the script to so many people which I'm doing now on this other screenplay my poor friends <laughs> but uh having to read someone's work in progress screenplay must be <laughs> got a special place in heaven for them Same thing with watching unfinished cuts of a film. Good grief. But yeah, no, I got a lot of feedback from people and you know, you definitely reach a point where you kind of get the sense. There are certain people who are seeing it, who understand what you're going for and get the aesthetic Mm -hmm. and like the aesthetic. And then you get people who are watching it who are like, I kind of wish this was more like a film that I like watching. You know what I mean? (laughs) Those notes are less useful. And it's definitely a point where I realized I can sort of separate those two and not, you know, get hurt by whatever, someone not getting my vision or, you know, that whole thing. So I feel like getting feedback from people who's, you know, temperament and taste was in line with the kind of product I was trying to make, um, was really helpful. And I did get a lot of feedback and we ended up changing the ending really drastically based on feedback. The ending is it had been written and shot, just didn't wasn't reading. It was not reading in ways that I was not okay with. People were misunderstanding in ways that like completely changed the film and so we changed it to something else that Alexi made me shoot against my will.
2: And <laughs> I'm so grateful.
1: Um so, yeah, that that was a big change that happened from showing the film to people.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, thinking through sort of... And, and here's the exciting part, right? Is that, you know, for us, it's not, okay, we're just going to make this one film and, you know, whether it makes money or loses money, that's it. it you know, we're really trying to take the long view and, and think about building a catalog over time and building a career over a long period of time. So uh, this first film, Movement and Location, uh, however it does financially, uh, I think we made it for lean enough that it won't totally destroy us. And, and hopefully it's actually something that we can make that money back and roll it into this next project. But beyond just, you know, for once, hopefully the money moving in the right direction, uh, the thing that I'm, that I'm most excited about is, is having some real data um, and then being able to share that data with other filmmakers to say, You know, this is, this was our budget. This is what it cost. And now this is where the revenue streams, uh, came in. I think this is whether it's, You know, as an independent filmmaker, you know, sort of balancing commerce and and art, or or, or just purely on a project by project basis. I think that the the pathway ahead, um, the sustainable pathway ahead, is is multiple revenue streams. You know, it's it's sort of this long tail economic theory. You know, you you gotta just have uh, maybe a little bit of money coming from a bunch of different platforms, and the the um, that in its entirety uh, should be enough. But you, um, if you're taking a long view, you know, okay, here's. Film number one. We've got another one lined up next year. Um, we've got an audience that we can kind of hopefully, you know, build off of some festival relationships that we can kind of hopefully build off of uh, and and just a lot more know-how that we can build off of. But I, I would say uh, in terms of tactically, you know, what would be the, the biggest difference for us moving ahead, you know, the, the mechanics of production are generally always the same. It's always grueling and you never have enough time and you never have enough resources. You just make it work, right? But, but how can we sort of, uh, be a bit more nimble, be a bit more forward thinking, uh, on the marketing side and the audience side, which again, like I said earlier, and I, I really do believe it is the biggest challenge for independent filmmakers of our generation is in a, in a sea of endless content. How do you even just let people know that you're there? And I think, there's a lot of possibilities there you know, in terms of big data, in terms of AI, in terms of things that will be coming ahead in the years ahead that might help us as independent filmmakers if we leverage those technologies to figure out, oh, this is where our audience is. Right. Hey, we're here. you know. But, but thinking through that tactically, I think uh, producing, having a producer of marketing and distribution and sort of social media outreach from day one, who's on set every day and who's going to take it all the way through – that would be the, the, the big difference because I think it will help on the festival side. I think it will help on the audience building side and ultimately it will help on the, the marketing distribution side. And then that just is something that was never on my radar before. But I think it's absolutely essential because there's nothing worse than spending all this time, you know, all these resources uh, on a film that then is released into a vacuum. can't yeah. have that. So um, <clears> I think that moving ahead would be just um, being a bit smarter about ongoing outreach. Yeah,
0: that's a great point. When you get that figured out, let us know.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, uh, yeah, me and the AI and the the big, big data stuff. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll get it all figured out. And, and We've been
1: doing some work for IBM recently, so <laughs>
2: big data stuff. So. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Yeah. I think. I think it's, it's watching. A lot of you know, we think about how, how much has changed in the last ten years. I think the next ten years are going to be even crazier.
0: Alexei Bodine, thank you so much oh my gosh, for my spending pleasure. this time with us. Thank you, Chris. You're great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. If you made it all the way through those bumps and thumps and are still listening, I thank you uh, with great humility. Uh, I'm learning a lot about podcasting, especially recording on location, and I promise you will never hear anything quite like that again. Uh, but I do want to thank the Tal Shorts Film Festival. Film Freeway and Seed and Spark for supporting the podcast. Don't forget to visit FilmFestivalSecrets.com and find me on Twitter at FFSecrets. Finally, if you'd like to see Movement and Location, you can see it playing uh, through September 24th at uh, the Cinema Village in New York City. Playing October 2nd through 8th at the Arena Cinema Hollywood in Los Angeles. And uh, throughout the South in October and December, visit Movementandlocation.com to learn more all about that. Thanks again, Alexian Bodine, and I'll see you next episode.